you know, I don't know about you, sometimes I look back on my life and I go, how did I become the way that I am? My wife often asks that question. How did you become the way that you are? And so maybe as you think back, you know, you go, uh, maybe there's certain moments, certain situations, certain experiences that shaped you in a particular way. And one of the things for me is I've always, as far back as I can remember, I've had this fascination with the really deep questions about life. And I know that growing up in church, and I, I went through a Christian, went to a Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade, I know that those places certainly impacted that part of my life. But I was thinking recently, and I was like, you know what, that was a big, big part of my life. But I think when I look back as a kid, something else might have played, I don't want to say an equally important role, but was also an important role in shaping my curiosity about the deep questions of life. You know, I don't think I was ever as excited as a young boy to go to church as I was for an opportunity to sit down with my dad and watch Star Trek, the original series. Any Trekkies in here? Okay, all right. How into Star Trek was I as a boy? Well, my mom will tell you a story of how uh, even at probably four years old, uh, she was walking through the grocery store with me in the cart, and uh, I was pretending to be Captain Kirk, and I was pretending and hoping hoping my mom would play along that she would be Mr. Spock. And uh, she tells the story of how being probably just four years old, I'm going around the grocery store in the shopping cart going, Spock, Spock, Mr. Spock, why won't you answer me, Spock? And my mom just kind of like, you know, onlookers looking at her. I would, and I would get even more frustrated as a kid. Spock, do you read me? You know, that's a really bad William Shatner impersonation, sorry. Um, and so you can imagine the looks from people in the, the grocery store. So I was, I was really into Star Trek. Um, if you've never watched Star Trek before, uh, don't worry. This isn't a sermon about Star Trek. I'm not going to geek out on you for too long. But you really don't even need to watch a single series or even a single one of the Star Trek movies to know what Star Trek is all about. It is encapsulated in the opening monologue of every single episode, which goes like this. You know, in the original series, William Shatner, Captain Kirk says, Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. There we go. Thank you, fellow Trekkies. You know, it's interesting. We see billionaires now kind of like living out their Star Trek fantasies. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are in a space race. Uh, Musk wants to be the first to build a colony on Mars. Jeff Bezos actually brought Captain Kirk into space. Did you see that a couple years ago? He brought William Shatner into space. Now, obviously, all of the space race stuff between the two of these billionaires could just be a race to build a larger monument to their own ego. That's very much possible. But I think it also could be something more than that, too. Maybe what's driving them is what the German philosopher Arnold Gellin called our sense of infinite obligation. There's something unique about human beings which seems to set us apart from all other species in God's creation. We have this appetite for discovery and this longing to continually go beyond where we are. We seem to never quite be satisfied with where we're at. We seem to always be looking for something else, something more. 
The late theologian Stanley Grantz argued that as we compare human beings to all other species in God's creation, we see that one of the most unique features of human beings is that we are not bound to a particular niche or habitat like other creatures. And we're continually transforming our environment and looking to discover new environments to settle in. To put it another way, right, your your dog isn't looking to go to space. Uh, Gorillas don't travel the high seas searching for new continents. We seem to be the only thing in God's created order with this appetite for more, to discover something beyond. Grantz writes this in his Theology for the Community of God. Because of this transcending capability, humans are never completely fulfilled by any one achievement or by any one transformation of the world we author. Rather, we are continually on the move to something yet undefined. That is to say, humans are never completely satisfied with the present. We are always seeking the new, the future, the not yet, that which surpasses the present. We are continually shaping and reshaping our environment in an unfulfilled attempt to create a home for ourselves. That's so true, isn't it? Now, maybe you don't have a single drop of interest to join Elon Musk on his space colony on Mars, or maybe you've never had a single drop of desire to travel across the seas to find uncharted lands, but each of us in our own unique way finds ourselves perpetually longing for more than what we have. You get a promotion at work. You get a bigger house that you think will make you happy. If you're a student, you become captain of the basketball team or you become the homecoming queen and you think this is what's going to fulfill me. And then suddenly, right after you get that promotion, the bigger house, the next thing that you thought, this is the thing that's going to satisfy me, you have a moment of satisfaction and what happens? It's on to the next one, right? It's funny how that doesn't seem to last. And I can tell you that simply being a Christian doesn't make you immune to this longing, as if you're searching for some undiscovered country. This is why I think one of the great songs of faith is a song written back in 1987 by a band called U2, a song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Does anybody know that song? Okay, I won't sing it for you. Bono does a much better job, but you can hear Bono, who's a professed, very vocal Christian, saying about his wrestling with this sense of infinite obligation, this sense of infinite longing, this sense that he knows the Christian story and yet he still experiences moments of feeling like he still hasn't found what he's looking for. Listen to these lyrics about how he's describing, I, I believe the right things about Jesus, but yet what is this? You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, oh my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What are we to make of this sense of longing? And what are we to do with the sense that our satisfaction in life can feel so fleeting and insufficient? To answer this question together today, I want to invite you to open to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at three key passages together this morning, and we're going to start in Romans 1, and we're going to look at verses 20 to 25 together. Romans 1, 20 to 25. 
Now, I'm going to read it. Uh, your pew Bibles are ESV, and I'm going to read it from the NIV. You'll notice a little bit of variation. I find the ESV in this passage to be a little bit trickier to, to read. So I will have the NIV on the screen as well, but you can kind of look back and forth at both. Romans 1, we're going to look at verse 20 to 25. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Here in Romans 1, Paul is explaining to Christians in the church in Rome what has gone wrong in their broader pagan Roman context that they find themselves situated in. And the fundamental problem that Paul points to is that in their longing for the infinite, they settle for the finite. In other words, the pagan Roman context has concluded that the good that they saw in God's created order was the ultimate good. They wrongly looked to finite things as their source of life, their source of ultimate satisfaction. So they made idols of things in God's created order that are actually good. There's nothing wrong with humans. Look at the things listed. Human beings, birds, animals, reptiles, they all have their place in God's created order. But worshiping them in hopes of having their longings for the infinite fulfilled and satisfied, when they, in fact, those things are not infinite, was disordered. The fruit of disordered worship is dysfunction. And this is the point that Paul's getting at. Look at the surrounding context. It's filled with so much dysfunction. Why is that? It's because disordered worship is happening. People are placing their hopes in finite things instead of in the infinite God. Now, in our modern context, we might look back on ancient pagan Roman context or the Hellenistic world, and we might go, how stupid was it for people to make idols to bulls or humans and worship them and think they will satisfy? But I want to help you think about this. (laughs) We do this actually all the time. Our present age is marked by the empty promise of fulfillment telling us that fulfillment can be found in the finite, and these idols are all around us. We are steered towards a path of infinite consumption through a constant barrage of advertisements that convince us the next finite thing we consume will satiate and satisfy our sense of infinite longing. Now, I wholly believe that if you have a product and service that is going to contribute to the good and flourishing of the world, you should share that and you should tell other people about it. But we live in the most oversaturated advertising culture in human history. And so much, if you look around at the advertisements that are constantly, I mean, just look, at that's a picture of Times Square there, but we don't need to go to Times Square. We have it on our phones. Like every three scrolls on Instagram is an ad, right? 
We are constantly barraged with these ads, and many of these ads sell us on this sense that if you get this product, you get this service, it is going to satisfy you. It's going to scratch that itch. So much of this advertising runs off the lie that the finite thing will be sufficient to satisfy your deepest desires. I want to speak specifically to my generation, so I'm an elder millennial on the border of Gen X and younger for a moment because I think there's some particular ways that this ad, that this messaging, I should say, gets delivered to you and to Gen Z. The latest thing in my generation and younger seems to be people selling you on optimization, self-optimization and how to optimize your life and this endless quest of self-optimization. So you get sold on like the meditation app that you need, which also links up to your keto app, which also links up to all of the people in your CrossFit gym, right? So they all know what you're eating, so you guys are all optimizing yourself all together. And that, you know, you feel like you have to do all of that stuff to address just one layer of your growing anxiety about this self-care routine. And you have to have the perfect self-care routine these days, right? That's a growing list of things that you have to do each and every day. And you heard one podcaster tell you that if you don't get up at four in the morning every single day, that you're going to be a loser, right? And then you heard another podcaster tell you, if you don't have at least six streams of passive income, you're going to be in debt the rest of your life because, hey, I mean, what other generation has to go through like a, a recession seemingly every four or five years? Way to go. Congratulations, millennials and younger. You get hit with a recession every few years now. So how are you going to make up for that? And now, like on top of that, you have to keep spending and spending and spending to get all of these things. You have to have like 10 to 12 different streaming services just to keep up with basic dialogue in the office about the shows everyone is watching, right? And you feel like, boy, if I don't have all of these streaming services, I'm not going to even have basic conversations with other people I work with. And for Gen Z, oh my goodness, Gen Z, I want to say it's like 10 times even worse. I remember back in high school, you know, it was pretty much like I was competing with all the other guys to get the attention of the girls, right? We all know that's what high school is primarily about. But all I had to compete against was like the guys in my local high school, you know, so I could be good at basketball or be funny and that's all they cared about and you got social status that way. Gen Z doesn't have that. They are constantly connected to a seemingly infinite network of people that they constantly have to compare themselves to all the time. And then what happens at school if you do something, oh man, all the Gen Z people in here are gonna be mad at me for saying this word. If you do something cringe, right? That's the thing Gen Z is most against. You do not wanna be cringe, right? You do not wanna be cringe. Cringe means like if you have, for example, like Walmart sneakers instead of Jordans and you go to school in your Walmart sneakers, and someone takes a picture of that, and now they're posting on social media. Now you didn't just get made fun of in high school that day, you got made fun of by people you don't even know. Oh my goodness, so hard. And so you feel this sense of, I gotta get the best sneakers, I gotta have this perfectly manicured like Snapchat persona and Instagram persona, and I also have to have a YouTube channel, because what person isn't a YouTube? YouTuber that's Gen Z, right? And if I don't have at least 10,000 subscribers, I'm nobody. And then, oh, I guess I'm also supposed to be streaming on Twitch how good I am at video games. It's like Gen Z has it tough. They do. This social pressure, this social pressure to get the next thing, to achieve, to, uh, to get something else that's being advertised to them. 
And once you get all of those right things, guess what happens? You get a moment of temporary satisfaction and poof, it's gone. And just like that, you find yourself quietly singing to yourself, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's like what Stanley Grantz writes, this human incapability to be fulfilled by any, any structure of the world in turn drives us beyond the finitude of our experience in a never-ending quest for fulfillment. Is there good to be found in eating healthy, joining a gym, exercising? Is there good to be found in the sense of community you might experience as you watch a show on Netflix with some friends and you have discussions about it? I mean, we do this in the worship team all the time. Is there good to be found there? Is there good that you can even experience as you maybe have interest in the beauty of fashion or the arts, attending a concert, going to the theater? Yes, there is good there that's part of God's goodness in his created order. But the key thing is, these are not experiences that are intended to be ends unto themselves. And the great temptation that all humans have faced from the ancient humans bowing down and worshiping statues of bulls to us bowing down to advertisements is that if we just get more and more of the finite thing, then maybe it will stack up to the infinite and satisfy our infinite longing. You kind of picture this as, this is like the symbolic deception of the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember that story from Sunday school in the book of Genesis, where people thought they could keep stacking a tower up to heaven. It was like they could keep stacking finite, 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 and eventually maybe they would get to infinity. It's not possible. This is actually the same lie behind what many medieval Christians commonly referred to as the seven deadly sins from the book of Proverbs. If you look at those seven deadly sins, you can see a pattern. Let's look at some of these, right? Well, let's look at all seven. Pride. What's pride? Pride is the continual elevation of self. Greed. What's greed? The continual consumption and hoarding of more material things. Wrath. The continual desire for more and more punishment and harm to those we feel threaten us. What's envy? Envy is an insatiable desire for more of what we see that others have. Sloth. The continual desire for more comfort and rest. Gluttony. The insatiable desire for the pleasure of food and drink. Lust. The insatiable desire for more and more sexual satisfaction, which turns other image bearers into merely objects of our desire. What's the common thread in each of these deadly sins? The common thread is that we find in each of these things people pursuing good, finite things that God has designed with a proper order and function. There's a proper order and function to good food and to good drink. But continual consumption of it is gluttony. But when we find that good, finite things get elevated to the place of the infinite God, when we think we could get enough money, we could stack enough pleasure, we could stack enough fame, and eventually it'll stack up to infinity and satisfy our infinite longings, then this improper relationship to the finite will produce dysfunction, disorder, and death in the world. When we treat the good, I'm sorry, when we treat the true, good, and beautiful, finite things in God's creation as sufficient for satisfying our infinite longings, they become idols. 
You need money to go out and purchase things. <laughs> you need food. You need drink. You need companionship. All of these things are good. But when we treat those good things, those finite good things, as sufficient for satisfying our infinite longings, they become idols. So then, the question you might have is, well, what is then our proper relationship to these true, good, and beautiful things that we experience in God's world? How should we rightly and properly relate to this? The truth, goodness, and beauty found within the finite is designed by God as an invitation to a perpetual journey of union with the infinite fount of truth, goodness, and beauty. When we see finite things as an invitation to continue upward, to find the source of truth, goodness, and beauty in God, then those finite things can function in their proper role. Instead of being idols, which we see them as an end of themselves, we can see them as a doorway. We can see them as an icon, which draws our attention upward and higher to their source. It points beyond the thing itself and ultimately to the source of life. That is the proper relationship. The ache we experience for the infinite is the image of God within us within our human nature, longing for union to its source and home in God. This is the ache that we feel. We were made for union with God. Now, many Christians in the past called this journey of union with God theosis, and it's a Greek word that they used to describe, again, a journey of union with God in Christ. What early church fathers like Athanasius believed, and in part of your, um, your bullets in there, you see at the bottom a recommended reading, go read 4th century church father Athanasius on the incarnation. You might go, I can't read that. You can, I promise you. And it's free online, just, just search for it. It's public domain. What early church fathers like Athanasius believed about this journey was that because God became a human in Jesus Christ, humans through their union with Jesus Christ would get to become united in such a way that we would experience the perfect bond of infinite love shared in the perfect union between God the Father and God the Son. So if you picture God the Father, God the Son, obviously perfectly united in the triune Godhead, how do we get union with that? You have a fully God, fully human Christ Jesus. In our union with Jesus Christ, we get united to God to experience that perfect union, that perfect bond of love between the Father and the Son. And that union with God, I want to encourage you, church, that union with God, that is the solution to our longing. This is what the author of 2 Peter is referring to in 2 Peter 1, verse 3 through 4. If you want to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, we will look at this in the ESV. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Here's the solution to our longing. I love this passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Whoa. 
I mean, it almost sounds, if you're not careful, like you look, look at that and go, gosh, that almost sounds blasphemous. Partakers in the divine nature? But yes, this is what the author of 2 Peter is pointing to as the solution to our desires for infinite longing, is that we can have union and participate in God, to be partakers of the divine nature, and then to escape the corruption of this disordered application of our desires, the disordered application of our desires, to see in the finite the end of our longings. I want to bring up just a couple of key points here, though, as we think about what this means, because we can get some misconceptions about what does it mean to participate in the divine nature, and what does it mean when we say things, like preachers say things like, God is sufficient. So I want to clear up a couple misconceptions here. Here's the first uh, thing I want to clear up, and it gets to the different kinds of knowing when we talk about knowing God. There's a difference between knowing a propositional truth about God and knowing through participation in God. Knowing a propositional truth about God isn't the same kind of knowing as participating with God. And let me, let me explain. Uh, to steal a helpful analogy from a well-known cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto, John Verveke, Verveke talks about the difference between propositional knowing and participatory knowing. So a propositional truth would be, uh, for example, the statement, cats are mammals. That's a truth about cats. It's a propositional truth. Now, I've never had a cat as a pet. I'm allergic to cats. Uh, I'm not a cat person. So I can tell you a propositional truth. Cats are mammals. Yes, I know that. But that's very different than knowing, let's say, a particular cat as a pet. I've never had a pet cat. So there's a bunch of things I can't tell you about. But those of you that have had cats or currently have a cat as a pet, you have a deeper level of knowledge about your cat than I do by me simply knowing, well, it's a mammal. It's got four legs. It meows. makes my eyes water and my throat scratchy. Those are propositional truths I know about cat. But you have knowledge about the cat that's different from participating with that cat as your pet. You know what its fur feels like. You know how its particular behavior has maybe changed over the years as it's aged. Maybe you even have a funny story from your 12th birthday party when the cat did something strange. Those are all different kinds of knowing that come from participating with this cat. This is why the Apostle James says in James 2, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith isn't just about affirming propositions about God. It's about participating with God in Christ. That's why Bono of you 2 can sing, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, I totally believe that you died on the cross for me, Jesus. You've taken my shame. I believe that, and yet I still feel empty sometimes. And it's why you and I, we can come to church, and we can wholeheartedly affirm things like the Apostles' Creed and still go home and maybe have a moment where we feel deeply unsatisfied. This is because this kind of participatory knowing isn't reducible to merely just believing a true proposition, like Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Yes, we need those. We need to affirm those truths. We need to have statements of faith and creeds. I'm not discounting that. But what I'm telling you is if you think just memorizing the creed is the same thing as participating with God, it isn't. And so there's a deeper level of participatory knowing 
Participatory knowing by its nature is a knowing that comes through a process of being together. And so what does it mean to know God by participating in the divine nature, as 2 Peter stated? If this kind of knowing is a journey and this kind of God we're getting to know is infinite, how does that process work? This brings up the second thing I want to clear up. Sometimes we talk about God is sufficient, right? That God is sufficient and that he satisfies all of our deepest longings. And sometimes we can maybe get the wrong idea about what this process looks like. We are finite and God is infinite. Satisfaction in God is an infinite journey. So when preachers say things like only God can satisfy, I want you to hear something that I feel like rarely ever gets mentioned, and I want to mention it to you now. And it can lead to a lot of confusion. It can lead to a lot of shame in people's lives. This doesn't mean when we say God is sufficient, it doesn't mean that all you will ever need is like one single moment or experience with God. That like, whether that's when you first became a follower of Jesus or you got baptized or, or maybe you went to camp when you were a kid and you had this incredible moment of worship, or even maybe this morning you're going to experience this powerful connection with God. That's not to say that you should be satisfied and you're never going to have any problems the rest of your life. That's not how this works. Because if you did that, you'd probably be making an idol of that experience, right? This experience is a finite moment. And so even the experience of deep sense of God's presence and nearness that you might feel in worship or when you were baptized or when you had this powerful time of prayer with a friend. That's not it. That's not all that there is. In fact, sometimes you might even experience, and I bet many of you have who have been on this journey with God for a long time, many of you might experience that when you've had those mountaintop moments where you just feel like, overwhelming sense of God's presence, his love for you, all of that good stuff that you have probably found that maybe a few weeks later, you suddenly got hit by this like feeling of being in a really dry valley. Has that ever happened to anybody before? It was just me, but like you had this moment, you're like, oh, this blows everything out of the water that I've ever experienced before. And I've had these moments. I know many of you had before. You know, and this is why I ended up getting into this sort of stuff with a guitar in my hands. It's because when I was young, I experienced a closeness to God and musical worship that for me, it blew everything else out of the water. There was like nothing that compared to that experience. And maybe for some of you that's, you know, going on a walk and praying when you're out in nature, or maybe you get that experience as you open up and you do your Bible devotions in the morning, whatever it might be. Those mountaintop experiences are often accompanied by valley experiences where you feel dry. And maybe you don't even feel like a single ounce of God's nearness. Uh, You might be experiencing in those moments, and I just want to brace you for them because they're part of the journey. You might be experiencing what the 16th century priest known as St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul when it feels like God is totally silent. And I want to encourage you, these cycles of mountaintop experiences, maybe even followed by dark nights of the soul, these are part of the journey. These are part of the journey for finite beings in this present age to go through a continual process of participating in the knowledge of the infinite God. 
So you might go, okay, Paul, well, if that's part of the process, if I might have mountaintop experiences and then I might have valleys, like what's the difference between that when I might be in the valley and going, God, I don't feel your nearness, to like when I've been really greedy and I've spent a whole year just trying to accumulate material possessions for myself and I feel empty at the end of that. What's the difference? Because Paul, if I'm going to have moments of feeling empty, maybe I'll just take the money, right? Maybe I'll take the gluttony. Here's the difference, and I want to encourage you, and I want to offer this. I intend this as encouragement and hopefully strength for you. The difference is that the continual journey of the knowledge of God is producing in you fruits of the Spirit, and you're going to be able to look back on past versions of yourself, even when you have these moments. You'll be able to look back on your journey, maybe five years down the road, and you'll go, I can see more love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. I can see these in my life. I look back on younger versions of myself and I go, yeah, I've had peaks and valleys. I've had moments, and it's like pastors aren't immune to this stuff. I've had moments where I go, God, where are you? I don't feel an ounce of your presence. I don't know if you're real. People have moments like that. Christians have moments like that. Pastors have moments like that. But I can look back on the difference between that and when I've been greedy. And I can see the fruits of the Spirit in my life. And here's what else I can see. I can see that that journey and the fruits of the Spirit in my life have actually contributed to the flourishing of other people around me. Whereas greed, sloth, envy does not. The continual journey of the knowledge of God is going to produce the fruits of your, the Spirit in your life. You may not see it right away, but I promise you, I promise you, and there are many of you who have been a much longer journey with God, that you can offer some encouragement to younger people and be like, keep going. Let me tell you from my story. Keep going. Because I've seen these changes in my life, in my marriage, in my relationship with my family members. The fruit of this journey with God leads to the flourishing and well-being of the world around us. The fruit of greed, envy, lust leads to the harm, destruction, and death of the world around us. That's the difference. And so while the journey of knowing God in this age is punctuated, it is punctuated by moments of difficulty and sorrow, I want to encourage you, in the age to come, the journey is only going to be marked by infinite bliss as we go from one mountaintop to another, from glory to glory. So in this age, you're going to have this. But the hope that we have in Christ is that we are going to, in the age to come, in eternal life, we are going to be going from mountaintop to mountaintop on this journey of knowing God more deeply, more intimately. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, gives us this encouragement. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. To affirm that God is sufficient, to agree with that idea, with that proposition, is to say, and then to live by faith, infinite God, I trust that you are the source and destination of all my finite longings for the infinite. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a statement of faith and doctrine that many in the Reformed tradition referred to, they word it like this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So one of the reasons why we've kind of maybe restructured worship in this month 
is that we want to afford opportunities after the sermon to give you a little more time to enjoy God, because that's what you were made for. And I want to encourage you, like, in a moment here, as the worship team comes back up, we're going to come stand back up and sing, and I really want to get this point across. When we do this, sure, you can treat it like Christian karaoke, right? <laughs> it's like we're just singing some songs. Um, you can go through the motions, but I want to encourage you, there is something that you can do in your heart, in your mind, to open yourself up to God in a fresh and a new way, and say, God, I'm not just singing songs about you, I am communing with you as I sing. And as you do that, I want to encourage you, sing heartily, even if you have a terrible voice. We have the music loud enough, so hopefully you could sing loudly and the person next to you might not notice. <laughs> sing loudly, sing heartily. Not because we all feel like, man, really good job, worship team. Sing heartily because as you open up your, or your heart to God in faith, you're going to get a foretaste of that infinite bliss, that infinite pleasure in the age to come. You're going to get what Paul called a down payment of the spirit, a down payment of the thing to come. So right now, we're going to participate with God. We're going to do that participatory knowing. So I want to invite you now to stand and to sing together.